0: Hello and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, joining me on the other line. I have all these bruises in my stomach and I suspect she has something to do with it. It's Danielle Hanley. (laughs) Oh, always. I'm always just, like, rogue punching people. Very effectively knocking the wind out of them.
1: Honestly, really thought there was a knife there from the way that Martha reacted. She just gets stabbed. And then she was, like, hobbling away. I was like, it, it could have been a knife.
0: My headcanon is the first two words of, like, some Straussian nonsense come out of some bro's mouth. And Danielle goes straight for the gut punch, knocks the wind. No Straussianism allowed.
1: It's like that, or it's like, I'm at another fucking, like, service meeting and i'm having the same conversation with the same people for the 85th time and it's like we we start the fight about like what constitutes the values perspective for the distribution (laughs) requirements and the philosopher keeps trying to be like values means this in a very narrow and annoying way that means only philosophy classes can count and that's when i do it (laughs)
0: This checks out fully. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, and done. (laughs) (laughs) We figured it out. We've solved Danielle's service commitments. Danielle's (gasps) going to go around punching her colleagues.
1: Uh, that would be bad
0: (laughs) it would be bad um it's good though in american season four episode seven
1: (laughs) great segue great i was like how's he gonna do it how's he gonna do it great segue keep going
0: (laughs) four times seven travel agents directed by dan atias written by tanya barfield danielle what's our summary this week
1: (laughs) the kgb and the fbi both race to track down a vital agent everything is at stake (laughs) dun 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 it's like i mean dramatic ellipses in there they did put dramatic ellipses which i appreciate also like the martha has been a vital agent for the kgb for like ever and the fbi literally in this episode realizes like how deeply (laughs) embroiled in this and so i'm offended on martha's behalf that they're calling her a vital agent for the fbi in this episode
0: when precisely Gad's point is, how did I never realize this person that I thought was mostly irrelevant to my life <laughs> and the security of the nation was, in fact, being seduced oh and married God. off by a KGB agent?
1: Gad is literally, like, every one of these reveals over the last couple of episodes, and like then his reaction, and then him, like re-saying the thing that is happening very slowly like yeah. as a moment of realization feels like he is the human equivalent of a russian nesting doll being like like opened and opened and opened. so he has to have the same reaction every time and it's just like we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it and it's all really fucked up and also kind of funny
0: I mean, Richard Thomas like giving Matthew Reese a late run for peak sad boy, I mean, um, and Costa in like, like so many sad boys on The Americans. No wonder I love this show so fucking much.
1: I was. This is a tangent, obviously.
0: <laughs> I mean, it took us three minutes. Like, no, that's that's not that's not true. It took us twelve, <laughs> 12 seconds because we immediately went to which colleagues is Danielle going to punch? <laughs> so.
1: I hope that my students aren't listening to this episode, <laughs> but
0: I hope they listen to Saltburn Pod.
1: They, they will. Literally, Tori was like, "If you don't send me Saltburn Pod, the minute it's
0: done recording, I'll kill you." <laughs> I was like, "Well, okay. the 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 ironic thing I realized is that so we talked about Saltburn on our four to four episodes, four six. season four episode six, which yeah. is going to come out like." tomorrow and a half after (laughs) we did a soft burn pod yeah so
1: in podcasting time is a flat circle but the the sad boy thing that i was gonna say is that i was hanging out with a friend of mine um from clark uh who happens to she's a woman and she happens to be a lesbian and she was like you're straight could you explain something to me and i was like oh god where is this going (laughs) i was like uh maybe (laughs) she goes Travis Kelsey, like, what? Like, what's going on there?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not where I thought the sad boy tangent was coming. It's going. coming.
1: Don't worry. It's coming. And I go, I don't know. She just, like, Taylor Swift has just dated, like, 85 sad boy musicians in the last, like, 10 years. And so and she needs, like, someone who can, like, toss her around a little bit and who's the opposite of that. And Liz was like, okay, yeah, all right, checks out.
0: <laughs> like, moved on. <laughs> So like Maddie Healy is like the half sad boy, half dirt bag on the way to full dirt bag experience. Uh, Maddie Healy is a sad boy, like in in, I don't em- know I'm saying. in is essence? half sad- mm. This is, this is a debate that we Regan would have something to say about. Regan is like highly convinced of uh, Maddie Healy's Riz is. This is a I mean like argument he we've had. Don't like that Regan likes this term, but I I'm like a, Regan, a, so I'm this, okay with it. <laughs> it's the second episode in a row. And I know. Then in podcast recording time, we will obviously have many conversations about <laughs> about who's rising up who, uh, when we record Blah, Salbert, please Bob. don't use it as a gerund.
1: Um <laughs> it's mo- it's mostly just like the thing that links like Maddie Healy to um I was about to say Joe Mandy, but it's not Joe Mandy. Joe Alwyn? Joe Alwyn, thank you. (laughs) To Joe Alwyn, like, to Harry Styles. Like, there's, like, the thread that links all of them is there's this, like, levels of sad boy, right? Like, (laughs) regardless of the other things that they are. And, like, Travis Kelsey is not that. It's, like, you couldn't find a sad boy thread in that man if you, like... Cut him open and like searched his insides. <laughs> <laughs> like they used to try to do to witches in the 16th century. Anyway, that's my no, sad boy no tangent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> From Travis no, Kelsey. You got no segue?
1: Well, Travis Kelsey, good at his job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, I think Danielle just volunteered to take us into the actual episode.
1: Honestly, I'm so proud of myself for that segue. <laughs> um, As you should be. We're organizing the main discussion today around the question, like, good at their job, which is something that John and I, like, kind of flippantly toss around when we think about... It's like we flippantly toss it around when we are making fun of Stan. <laughs> and But we often are talking about the different ways in which Philip and Elizabeth are good at their jobs and how complicated that makes their relationship. And so we thought, because you get these... in in part because you get these parallel searches for Martha from the KGB and the FBI, actually organizing the question around, like, whether and how these institutions or these organizations are good at their job, and then, like, how that impacts all of the different interpersonal relationships and dynamics that we see throughout the episode. We thought that that would maybe be, like, a good way into this. So maybe we start with the parallel searches for Martha. Let's start with the KGB side.
0: Sure. I think the question, one of the questions here is whether Martha's slow motion escape from the safe house, like,
1: question, did they not why,
0: why didn't they have someone outside is, I think, a legitimate question, like... Isn't Hans... I know Hans is busy teaching economics to the youths, but, like...
1: Hans gotta make surely the he's you
0: Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> surely you can get Hans there. On that, on that level, Martha escaping is, like, KGB bad at their job. Yeah. But there's a way in which, like, Martha's evasion of FBI as well, like, yeah. shows that Philip Clark's training of her was effective on some level. So there's a certain way in which Martha, you know... Eventually gets found, of course, but, like, volunteers herself to be yeah. found. Yeah. So there's a way, much like, Martha is both good and showing that the KGB is both good and bad at their job, at least vis-a-vis how they understand their bureaucratic institutional role vis-a-vis her.
1: The thing that I was thinking about—I think that's a good point—but the thing that I was thinking about in terms of the, like, Martha slow-motion escape, which I appreciate you describing it like that, is, like, One, she couldn't have gotten too far, so, like, they should have just driven to her house, because that's clearly where she's going, right? Like, that's where she sees people. But, so that's, like, a misstep there. But it made me wonder if part of what the KGB is really good at is the long game, and the thing that they are actually not that good at is these, like, smaller ripples or a term you used earlier, like interruptions, right? Like, I wonder if part of the reason they don't have someone stationed outside is because Philip brings Martha to this safe house sort of unexpectedly, right? Like, he just kind of shows up. And we pick right up with, again, like, another theme of the season. We're sort of, we're picking up from the minute we left them the night before or the day before, right? Like, so... I wonder if part of it is, like, good at long-term planning and embedding agents and having this, like intense layered infrastructure to like siphon information from the American government, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that they're bad at is these like short term things, or when they try to do something quickly, which is often when we see the mistakes or the missteps, even with Philip and Elizabeth, who are totally incredibly skilled at their jobs. Like that's where we see things like breaking up. So I wonder if that's like, if Martha escaping is kind of revealing that difference in context being really important.
0: Philip is grappling with, and Elizabeth to some extent as well, is grappling with how much individual responsibility Philip bears yeah. for this particular situation. Yeah. And clearly this particular situation means most directly the fact that Martha left, right? Philip several times, like, I should have stayed I should there. should have been there. And Elizabeth says, you know, it's not your fault, um, et cetera, et cetera. But also, I think Philip is, of course, grappling with the, to what extent am I responsible for Martha's, like, this total, like, rending of her life and her understanding of herself and her future at the same time. And that's, like, a very classic Americans, the plot dynamic question and the inner turmoil, inner psychic question yeah. uh, running along the same track.
1: Yeah, and the thing that I kept thinking about when that keeps coming up in the episode is, like, it's not Philip's fault, it's Gabriel's fault. <laughs> but In part because, like, Philip has said multiple times, like, this entire season, but I think in, even in last season, like, this is getting too dangerous, this is too risky, like, and I think even before he reveals himself to Martha, you're getting, Philip is skittish about this entire thing, right? And so, yes. and they, Gabriel, but I think Gabriel and Elizabeth's oftentimes, see Philip as, like, skittish and as, like, not invested enough when, in reality, it seems like maybe he is sort of experience, like, the affective experience that he is having is, I think, markedly different from Elizabeth and from Gabriel for a number of different reasons. But he seems to be picking up on something on attention that, like, they're not willing to to
0: recognize. I think that's correct. And I think part of what explains that is that Philip, definitely not fully, but he has disidentified from the KGB and the Soviet Union to a much greater extent than either Elizabeth or Gabriel has. And I think it's that breathing room that he has given himself that, that uh, fosters or enables that difference.
1: I think that that's totally right. And I think you see it in this episode when he, and there are other reasons for this, as well, but I think when he's, like, when he tells Martha that he won't be coming, I think, and, like, of, like, and when he says to Elizabeth that I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not going, like, I I think part of that is, like, part of it is certainly, like, like, I'm married to you and, like, what he says, and part of it is also a function of this disidentification, right? Because I think if the, if we switch the roles and Elizabeth was, like, Offered the chance to sort of slowly extricate herself to go to the Soviet Union, I think she goes.
0: Wow, that's a great question. I
1: or I think she's more likely to go than Philip is
0: because, yes, like, I think more likely than Philip is how yeah. I put it.
1: But I like I could I could envision a version of this where she's like, okay, in five years I will be there, and Philip for Philip there like that is not even the the question is a
0: is a it's moot from the jump.
1: And I yeah. think it's that's a function of the disidentification that you're like that you're highlighting.
0: Even on a plot level, I found this a very effective episode narratively on the yeah. on that plot level in the cutting back and forth between the KGB and FBI searches, with the occasional like inter other things interspersed with the sense of time and place that they establish. Yeah. Throughout the course of the day. Yeah. Um, The, I mean, you pointed this out when we were talking before we started recording, like, that Martha is up on top of that bridge. And, um... And Stan and Adderholz like understand they need to go to that bridge. And there's an establishing shot where like they're in the car and you see the bridge, right? And then Stan's on top of the bridge. I thought I thought this thought like construction wise and carrying out you know, essentially like an op, but in a different sense. Like I thought this was a, a strong episode there.
1: No, I think so too. And I, I was, I think the that moment where Stan's like, "That's the bridge from the picture," and you've just yeah. seen Martha on the bridge. Like yeah. that moment, I was like, "Oh!" And I thought, and I think the show is designed for us to think this, but I thought that Martha had jumped already, right? Like that, that was that that was going to be the reveal, as opposed to like then we get her calling, uh, calling the like
0: calling the operator, Philip, yeah. 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 No, that's it's an it's a nice point because this is to give credit to the show. I think the show had written and created itself in such a way that the people behind it did that. Um in such a way that Martha jumping, yeah, Martha going somewhere else as she did, mm-hmm. or Martha like breaking down and freezing and being on top of the bridge when Stan got there were all plausible scenarios. I think that's right. And to your point, the show was playing with our expectations of like tropes in this genre or in like action genres or in dramas or whatever, because the way that Martha is filmed when she's on top of that bridge mm-hmm. is filmed dramatically with the right music as if she's going to jump. Yeah. And there's a like cut to commercial um, that is like, well, you could wake up and wake up with a shot of her like in the water or yep. her having hit her head on the rocks or whatever. Whatever, or to your point, being found by Stan Ratterholt. So yeah, I think just like the show kept all of those possibilities open, and that they were all legitimate.
1: Yeah, and I think like that is the mark of a good show when any of those pathways are are plausible. You know, like that is the mark.
0: And not because the show is, like, interested in doing a 100,000 twists and being ridiculous, so it's, like, unpredictable, but because any of those would be, like, tonally and thematically consistent with a very intentionally made and constructed and conceptualized shows. So, like, I just... Earlier today, I finished Murder at the End of the World, which, like, I have mixed feelings about. But, like, there, if there was that kind of show, we would say, I didn't know what was going to happen to Martha because the show is kind of fucking all over the place and, like, doesn't really know what it's doing and, like, is just there for the twists on some level. Whereas this show, like, is fine with its occasional twists, but, like, it is so intentionally built. right? So as to make, like, all of those are emotionally, thematically, narratively, characterologically like uh, reasonable choices.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's I like I think it's a good point. And and you know I was surprised that Martha calls the operator and like ev- like gets to Philip, but I was surprised that that, but not surprised in a this is not consistent with her character, just surprised that, like, that was the path the show went down.
0: I agree. And I think consistent with her character is also true, because Martha, like, has been in the driving seat yeah. when of plot when within the heavily circumscribed agency that we have discussed <laughs> at length <laughs> at over length. the past season and a half of yeah. The Americans. Like, she will be... A, she will exercise as much activity or agency or, like... Um, influence on the direction of the plot so to speak as she is able to given the circumstances and like that's emphasized i think in what she says to philip on that call right you left me with a stranger yeah i didn't know if you were coming back i don't know what to do you're just going to tell me some version of the truth that's not really true right? I want it to end. Like, these are all the realest possible things for Martha to be able to say. And Alison Wright does an incredible job delivering those lines. And in that, like, Martha is in an even further circumscribed situation, nonetheless, like, asserting something in the face of it.
1: Yeah. Fully endorse that read and think that, like, She's a she's a a perfect example of like an instance of constrained agency, like what agents what agentic behavior looks like even yeah. under conditions of like severe constraint, right? And sometimes you only have like an intensely emotional response and a phone call, and that's all that you can do, right? And then we sort of get her, the interaction with Elizabeth. I can't remember Elizabeth's character name when she's... Jennifer, Jennifer, that's right. It was, like, very 80s. (laughs) Um, There were, like, 85 Jennifers in my high school graduating (laughs) class. Um, But then, like, in the interaction with Elizabeth, uh, with Elizabeth as Jennifer, there is that, like... Once again, she's like, there's not that much I can do. I know that I'm not going to, like, outrun this woman because, like, she's clearly a professional. But I can scream and I can, like, raise my voice and I can make a bit of a scene which forces Elizabeth to, like, make some decisions about physical arm.
0: Well, Danielle is—Danielle's channeling her project here a little bit in terms of noise (laughs) noise and voice, Uh, it sounds like to me— But, yeah, I mean, like, Elizabeth has this very, like, cautious approach Mm -hmm. to Martha. And I think responds, like, she's good at her job in responding to Martha's Are You Sleeping With My Husband? Because she tells a lie, right, which is no. Although maybe technically that's not a lie on some extreme technicality. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) But regardless, like... In the, broad, like, she's, she can has that lie, but also gives a bit of truth, too, right? That, like, Clark's quote-unquote mom is also one of them, right? So, like, she gives, gives a little yeah. bit of both to Martha, and then just, like, straight up just punches her in the stomach and, like, knocks the wind out of her, and Martha is done.
1: I was definitely surprised that Martha... I, I think that I shouldn't have been, but I was definitely surprised that Martha was, like in her right mind enough to be like, you're not really his sister, and, like, the mother is not really his mother. Like, those felt... But again, like, consistent with this, like... Again, this, like, agentic reading of Martha, like, that those are the places where you you see her grasping for things. I was like, what are you going to explain Gabriel as? Gabriel's the dad? (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, Gabriel's the same position as, like... The fake mom. I was waiting for like some equivalencies there. Yeah. We didn't get them.
0: We didn't get them. But yeah, I thought that was that was an effective scene, and Elizabeth is clearly ready to commit. Grievous bodily harm um, goes with the lighter version of that with the stomach punch. And then Philip arrives in like, in a little bit of paralleling of him and Martha, like yells for Martha, right? As the sun is starting to set, like they captured a really beautiful color of sky when Philip arrives. And it's like, oh, this is the sunset of Clark. It's the sunset of Philip and Martha's relationship.
1: I got in a brain wormhole about like, like Philip and Clark and like should we be talking about Philip as Philip right now should we be talking about Philip as Clark and like I think that's also kind of an interesting question for us sorry this is like me just like <laughs> so it's tan- only tangentially related to what you were saying which is why I was like I gotta get myself out of this brain hole I feel like so often on this podcast as evidenced by three minutes ago and I was like what's Elizabeth's character name we're like trying to be clear about which version of these characters we're talking about. And there's, like, a muddying that has happened with, like, Philip as Philip, Philip as Clark, and a muddying that has happened yes. for Philip, right? Like, yes. It's not just for us, it's, like, for Philip. And so I was like, how can I get what you are saying to that point so we can talk about that?
0: <laughs> That's okay. Well, I mean, so here's one way to do it is that once – Philip and Martha are reunited, right? Martha asks him, "What's your name?" He says, "Philip," and she's like, Mm-mm. "What was the What's name your... you were born with?" Right? I know.
1: Well, and that was that. Was where that was also like the the Misha of it all, which is like it's just like unpeeling all of these layers of intimacy that like. I think we've talked about this with Philip before too that like Philip has a degree of intimacy with Martha that he like isn't capable of having with other people or that he doesn't have with other people and there's something about the name reveal both that she is is like capable of asking that question even amidst all of this like distress yep. right and that he is willing to answer it and answer it truthfully. All of those things are, I think, marks of the, the like, level of intensity of their relationship, which Elizabeth is also reading, right? And that's part of why she's like, you could go, right? Like, you could leave. And I think mm-hmm. he's surprised by Elizabeth's, like, the offer that Elizabeth makes him. And I was surprised right. by that, too.
0: There's a couple of ways to read that offer, because it mm, it verbalizes in a different way the way that Martha has like been an escape option for yeah. Philip like this is Philips realist possibility how to escape actually even though yeah. it's a return to the Soviet Union but an escape from the life that he is living in I think that Elizabeth asks I think Elizabeth asks that in a way that is hurtful to her. But also, and and is also like a a compassionate sort of offer. Mm -hmm. I think Elizabeth wants to recognize, even if it's in a slightly fucked up way, and maybe it's not even fucked up, that there is something real about the emotional bond between Philip and Martha. Yeah. And also recognize Philip's increasing alienation from life of illegal KGB in the U.S.,
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think because they have had a kind of, like, ratcheting up of their own, like, um, intimacy over the last couple of episodes, like, see, for example, the, like, intense sex scene, right, sort of all of these pieces, I think there's a version of this offer at the end of the third season or, like, midway through the third season right, that is, like, a disingenuous or a kind of threat to Philip, right, that Elizabeth makes. And there's something, like, actually quite sweet about the way that she's like, you could go. And so, like, again, sort of for me, in the, like, Clark, Philip, Martha, Elizabeth, like, in that, like, quagmire of relationships, there's also, like, something has shifted for Elizabeth and Philip, and it is a function of... It's like a function of Philip's breakdown, but Martha is a really important component to all of that, too. It
0: is. And I appreciate both the writing and then Matthew Reese's acting of the one of the first responses being, like, are you crazy? Yeah. And then one of the final responses being, I love you. Yeah. That's actually not something we hear them say to each other all of the time. So that it happens in this particular moment, as I thought, extremely pointed and intentional. And... You know, gives an insight into the precise dynamic that you're unfolding about the certain kind of deepening of their relationship, even with all of the whole fuck ton of tensions that persist.
1: Yeah, I uh, like fully agree. (laughs) Oh, this is a good episode. Do you want to go
0: to? No, I think I think like we're we're on this we're on this path. We might as well continue. Is like the. Relation, the conversation that Philip and Martha have about what's going to happen to Martha, right? That she's yeah. going back to Russia. Um, that it's the only way, right, is is the line to begin a new life, right? These are the things that Philip's telling her, among other things. And I think that Matthew Rhys plays that conversation, and we can probably talk about each of Matthew Rhys and Allison Wright in this moment, but mm-hmm. the way that Matthew Rhys like, plays this is, I think he's showing on some level that Philip believes this and on some level that Philip thinks this is what he has to say. Yeah. And of course, like in a episode full of sad boys, like Matthew Reese like really digs deep into his sad boy reserves to like portray the saddest Philip. I mean <laughs> Philip's face Philip. when he's like having this conversation with Martha is heartbreaking. And then we have Allison Wright's Martha' face <sighs> and voice is even more heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, the part that really got me, and, uh, and the mm, the part where he was like, "They will respect you," I was like, "Ugh." That's but, true, though. No, no, I think is, that's true. No, I think it's true too. It was it, the sorry. The my point is is not that he's lying about it, but it's that like it is depressing that that is true. And, like, that also, I think, is a nice top, like, capper onto our discussions about Martha's agency, right? And the the deep misogyny, like, in the FBI and all of that. And also, it's, like, I think it's, like, exactly the kind of thing that, like, Martha needs to hear in addition to the, like, this is how you, this is the only way you can live. But, like, there's something about that, like, it will be fundamentally different there um, because of what you have done. Like getting Martha to see that like, she has like contributed to this cause, which I don't think she is like seeing and I wouldn't be seeing either. Right. Because like, yeah. all of this is like kind of slapping her in the face.
0: Of course. And I think that, you know, that, Philip's line that they will know her sacrifice, yeah. I suspect rings hollow for Martha, even as she also needed to hear it for the ways that you exactly that you just articulated. And, I mean, Allison right here is just incredible. Um, like, just incredible. The the crack in her voice when she starts to like talk about you know oh. that I'll never get to see you that I'll never see you know, what about my parents again yeah. right that you know all of these things like the how twice her voice cracks and also she cracked her voice once in one of the phone calls um, with her parents earlier yeah exactly and that was just I thought excellent and then like the I think the line that was most cutting that Martha gives is. I'll be alone, right? It'll be, like, before I, I met know. you. When actually, like, that is, of course, Martha's, like, of course, that's her emotional experience of this. But, like, the saddest fact is that she was still alone even when she was with Clark. I know. In a way that, like, she still, of course, is not able to give voice to, but isn't yeah. able to give voice to at this moment. Like, doesn't have the, the distance, if she ever could have the distance, to be able to explicitly voice that point as well. <sighs>
1: I know there is something like her responses in that conversation are like so gutting. Yeah. Um and as as you've said as we've said a number of times Allison Wright just like she delivers these lines in 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 such a way that is just like it makes you feel how gutting they are, right? Like it's just it's so I don't know, when she's on the phone with her parents and she's like, I'm in big trouble. On the one hand, I was like, how does the FBI know that this is a phone she's going to use? But we could put that to No, the they're
0: side. tapping her parents' phone.
1: Oh. See, that makes more sense. Now, I have a PhD, <laughs> and I was like, how do they know that this weird—and then, like, that, that this— But predict- your PhD is
0: not in spy Spycraft. Spacecraft. It should be, though. Or I mean. counter-surveillance. <laughs> I mean we we have read Machiavelli and Strauss like
1: Machiavelli and Strauss together, it's like that's spycraft, right? Like that's it.
0: <laughs> that's what they teach at the fucking FBI Academy, right? You just And the read committee Mickey on social and <laughs> <laughs> Sort of that's sort where of the real heads. Um
1: <laughs> just like the title of our podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's just for us. Um oh my god Uh, too good too good should we talk about the fbi side of it
1: yes please um where
0: should we start
1: i mean let's start back with the like good at their jobs question mark right because this isn't this is like a three episode span where stan has become amazing at his job like, and Adderholdt too. And Adderholt, yeah. Well, and, like, maybe that's why Stan has become good at
0: his job, because Adderholt <laughs> actually... he's finally working with Adderholt. Yeah, okay. because
1: Adderholt actually is good at his job. <laughs> I maintain yeah. that. But, like, the... Just, like, Gad's reactions to, like, learning everything will, like, forever be imprinted in my brain as, like, just wild. He's like, <laughs> this is a terrible comp. Please. I ever, can't wait. Have you ever seen Emperor's New Groove? I have not. Okay. <laughs> it was my best friend in high school, Shannon. It was her favorite movie, right? It's it's like The Emperor's New Clothes, but sure. with a, the emperor turns into a llama. Listen, I haven't seen it in a long time, so maybe incredibly racist, but like and also it like didn't quite follow the like Emperor's New Clothes like fairy tale, which I was intimately knowledgeable of when i was younger but anyway there is a scene where there's like you know like in every disney movie like an evil witch-like character and then she's got like a lunkhead sidekick right who's like doing the lifting and whatever and there's a scene where they're like camping and gronk uh gronk i believe is his name Krunk? Kronk, cronk is his name He's an right. idiot. Like, that's the the joke of the thing. But he sits up at night in this, like, very tiny tent, and he, like, has worked out the entire... He's like, the guy with the thing over there. It's the same guy. Right? Like, he works out who the llama... That the llama is the king. But, like, he's dumb, and he does it sort of in his sleep, and it feels like that is what Gad is, co- is cosplaying. He's like, you mean to tell me that Martha is married to a high-level KGB agent like there's something about the way that he's like repeating those lines where I'm like oh Adderholt and Stan great at their jobs Gad aggressively bad at his job (laughs) anyway a long tangent
0: (laughs) sure but But I'm interested to see how you bring it back
1: Well, I think, like, to bring it back is just, like, to be thinking through the ways, like, the thing that's kind of interesting about GAD's, like, uh, well, slowly unrolling realizations over the course of last episode and this episode is that, and I think maybe the same is true for the KGB, everybody has, like, moments in the show where they're good at their job, bad at their job, and, like, it is about the particular, like, alchemy of those moments and everybody needing to be good at their job for these things to work out and over and over and over again we sort of we see that happen and this is an interesting episode because like you are missteps with the KGB that we don't often see in this way right and then there's like some real good work being done by the FBI and like the it's it's almost as though they've switched places at least for me in my brain.
0: Yeah, and I think another kind of example of that is Stan is not the most emotionally sensitive, high emotional IQ guy that exists, or person that exists. And yeah, like, he has a sense of what's going on with Gad, as does Adderholt, right, at various stages. And like, Stan is actually quite sensitive which is not necessarily the word we would always use yeah. for him in the way that he relates to Gad at the same time that he is being effective at the job of trying to track down Martha and I think that there's all, there's an emphasis on and this goes to your thesis about them kind of switching places like we get a lot of FBI process carefulness yeah. precision and like Philip and Elizabeth are like are we going to the church are we picking up pawns or not who's going to stay home for the call like there's a there's they're the yeah. ones that are the scattered ones. Yeah. And it's, like, the FBI that's being methodical here. And, like, this is a, I hate that you gotta hand it to him moment, but, like, you gotta hand it to him. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there's this scene where they're in Martha's apartment that is, I think, meant to call attention to all of these dynamics, because they take great pains to show how careful the search of the apartment is. Like, uh, Stan is pulling out the electrical socket. They have one token FBI agent who's a woman, and of course they assign her to the duty of check the tampons to see if there's, like, a secret message or something um, in one of the applicators or whatever. And, like... So there's all of that stuff happening, and also there's a Gad moment, and yeah. there's the Adderholt seeing Gad, Adderholt communicating via eye contact with Stan that, like, Gad is really fucked up, so there's there's a lot happening in there. I thought that was an effective scene.
1: Yeah, and the thing that, like, this scene reveals, or, like, at least it revealed to me, the tampon applicator thing was the where it, like, clicked for me, was that, oh they and this like goes back to the imdb summary right like they have jumped to thinking that martha is like so important and like Im- embedded in the kgb in a way like that sh- that she's like become elizabeth right like in that's Great how Paul, they're treating yeah. her and i'm like of course there are no secret messages in the tampon applicators she just like told uh, Clark over dinner, the things that she, like, took from the, fi- the file cabinet or, like, the copies she made, which, by the way, guys... she said,
0: Manja! Yeah. And then...
1: <laughs> and then she had a gun in her draw on the Kama Sutra, and, like, that was that, yeah. right? Like, it's, like, it's not that... Compl- classic, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, like, it's not that complicated with Martha, but they have gone from thinking that this woman is, like, just an idiot secretary to thinking, like, she is a mastermind for the KGB, and there's, like, there is a a disconnect there that's that's fascinating but it is pushing that's like the reason why they become good at their jobs right like that's the catalyst because the the threat is so big and it is
0: big yes but it has It it is but it
1: has been big for so long but they have like they have mistakenly uh drawn conclusions about Martha's, like, involvement lead to them acting in a way that is dangerous to Martha, but, like, are not actually, like, congruent
0: with, like, who she is to all of this. And I think there's a moment where... That is implicitly recognized, at least by Stan and Adderholt. Yeah. When Stan points out when they hear the call to Martha's parents, that Stan is like, they, they don't, don't have yeah. her. Stan understands that the it's like much more up in the air. Yeah. It's much more like disheveled of a situation than yeah. they had uh, been operating under the assumption of.
1: A hundred percent. And so it's interesting to watch that play out
0: on the screen. Wrapped up in all of this, of course, is Gads just... There's one way in which he's good at his job amidst being, you know, like, as you point out, maybe terrible at his job, where he says, like, I stood up to the deputy AG and, like, stood up to the director and, you know, like, protected Stan when he has been pissed at Stan for, like, a full season and a half or something. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's that moment as well. But then, of course, Gad is is really fucked up. And, like, one of the things that you and I have pointed out at a couple different places this season is the way in which the FBI talks about Martha is, like, revealing of institutional patriarchy and misogyny. Yeah, And, like, that continues with the way that Gad talks about her, right? Yeah. They married her they seduced and married my secretary. Yeah. Like, there's a possess- there's a possessiveness, there's a, like, proprietarian thing, there's a patriarchy thing, there's a, like, belittling of her, like, in her agency all throughout this. Like, so, like, that is an incredibly indicative line of, like, FBI institutional worldview.
1: A hundred percent. And, like, even, right, the verbs that they just, did, like, double down on the, on what you're saying, like, Martha is the object of all of those verbs, not yep. the subject, right? And yep. so even when they like, the FBI is like, Martha is a threat to us. Martha is not the threat. It's the KGB that's the threat. And Martha is the object that is acted on. Which just emphasizes the the same thing that we've been talking about all season, but now it's doing it in such a way that it, like, makes her dangerous.
0: Yes. Although Stan offers here a rejoinder as well, because he's like, maybe they were in love. What he throws off is, like, a, you know, to try to, like, assuage Gad or whatever, and Gad sees (laughs) right through it but that's not wrong
1: no that's not wrong and also like i don't know there's like there's a way to read that exchange like back into the oh like are women are women just emotional like are like are they like do their emotions mean that they're weaker like able to be manipulated like which is which is obviously where gad is coming from right and stan is like well like they might be emotional but also like like martha has agency right like that or at least has some like some semblance of agency where gad is not willing to like give her anything i don't know i feel like there's a political theory debate in there (laughs) that they're like
0: sniffing around Maybe maybe we'll get to it in theory shift. I wanna. I think it's worth calling attention to as we've been, like, looking at the the KGB part and the FBI part. Like, one, I found, like, very fascinating parallel mm-hmm. between the two. Okay. And that is we have, I think, like, vaguely parallel scenes of Joan, the KGB's phone operator, is, like, asking Philip as they're killing time about, like— so, what did you know? Did you meet? Like, had you ever been to the home of George, who was the previous like, right. phone person in her role? Um, because I was being trained for this, and then all of a sudden I got deployed, and it seemed weird. And I want to know more about this. Yeah, interrupted by the Martha phone call, right. and like that gets totally dropped. Couple minutes later, or sorry, a couple minutes before that, they are in the like safe room in the FBI, yeah. and the Deputy AG is like yelling at Stan to use the Oleg blackmail yeah. tape, and like, and Stan understands that like this won't work on Oleg. This is the precise wrong way to do it, which I think he's correct about. Yeah, and the Deputy AG is like refusing to take this for an answer. That gets interrupted by a different Martha call. Right, so there's like the way in which these. Really like pressing on two of the main characters to yeah. say or do things they really didn't want to say or do. They like they got saved by the bell of the phone <laughs> uh, ringing. Sorry, um, love that. And I just thought that like that was uh, that was just an, a, a fascinating parallel to me and a, like and a twinning of of, of Stan and Philip in this moment.
1: Yeah, and it's it's like on the one hand, right? Like it's it's like that the mundane. All- like, easily interrupts the, like, these moments of intensity, right? Like, yeah. the phone ringing mm-hmm. um, in both of those cases. But the the phone ringing in both of those cases is actually, like, the opposite of mundane. It's the very thing. It's, like, the the most important thing, right? Yeah. On the other hand, the thing that I was thinking about when – I think you're right. Your read on, like, Stan's
0: read on Oleg is correct. Like, I think – like he's not gonna be threatened. talking about the resident tour because like Tatiana and Oleg don't actually know what the mission is, or at least Oleg definitely. Oleg doesn't. doesn't. Tatiana know, yeah. has some sense of what the mission is because she's also using this to like get the uh, the rat out of the out of the country. The and then Arkady has the full view of what's happening. Right. Well, no, he only has a partial view of what's happening because he doesn't know about the rat. He doesn't know about the um, rat,
1: right? Because she's the only one that has the clearance for the rat.
0: Exactly. So yeah, so there's a there's a way in which like they are they are planning this mission, like they are functioning as the travel agents um, in this episode. Yeah. Not any of them have a hundred percent the full picture Tatiana has the most, probably. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting like as a way to draw out the Olyak Tatiana relationship. It was interesting. We love Lev, so we, we love got Lev. some Lev scenes, even if very brief, too brief, of course, um, for Lev. So I don't know. I thought that this was like, you know, and they, they have a plan. I'm not going to say anything about what happens in the next yeah. episode, but like there is a plan with a pilot to like fly her to Cuba and then from Cuba to Prague to Moscow right, right, or whatever. Yeah. Right. they put it together.
1: Yeah. I don't, maybe it's just that I don't trust Tatiana. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> oh, look, Danielle, not trusting some of the female characters in the show.
0: Surprise. Surprising producer Amy isn't shining into for her (laughs) interpretation of the situation.
1: (laughs) Oh my god. Should we close up the main discussion there and head into the segments?
0: I think we should. All right. All right. This seems like a rich Daniel Dossier uh, (laughs) situation. I have a whole theory about the Dossier, but this is your time to shine.
1: Okay. Well, first it's like I spent the whole episode being like, are we going to get to the end of this episode and Martha's still going to be fucking alive? Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This—it's been like ten episodes of of like Martha should be dead already, and like I just—I think this is this is part of it where I'm like, is the KGB good at its job? Because I feel like she should be dead for the KGB. That's that's.
0: Can I offer a follow-up question? Yeah, that takes the Daniel dossier way too seriously. I love it. Um. Why do you think the show has kept Martha alive?
1: Well, one, she's a phenomenal actress. Two, I True. think the like,
0: we need
1: the audience has needed a, a way to see like all of the complexity of Philip's character and the and like the way that Philip is with Martha adds a layer of like emotional intensity and complexity that like we don't just get with Elizabeth and I think like we need someone like we need the relationship with Martha for the way the relationship with Elizabeth has developed to make sense right like yes because Philip's not like learning how to be in this intense relationship at home but he's like bringing the skills from the from the Martha relationship where he's like initially cosplaying being in a loving marriage, and then I think eventually being in a loving marriage, and then that translates to something happening, like, in his actual home. Like, we need all of those, we need all of those sites of learning, also back in my book project right
0: now. Clearly.
1: <laughs> we need all of those sites of learning in rehearsal so that, like, the Philip's character arc in all these different ways makes sense.
0: I love that. That's brilliant. But also I've deviated (laughs) us off course of wild Danielle conspiracy theorizing. So I, I, I return the floor to you again.
1: Second thing in the dossier. So first thing in the dossier is like, how is Martha still alive? And I want, I want to say next episode, like maybe I I still think that she's going to end up dying. Like, I don't think that she ends up surviving this, but who knows? Maybe she like moves to Russia and like, you know, has a happy life. The next thing is I and this is you know content warning, but I think we gotta be on a Gad suicide watch here, <laughs> like I okay. like first of all, I thought Martha i like I said, maybe Martha was gonna jump, she doesn't, but like Gad wistfully staring out the window, thinking of the better days when he actually like did his job well, <laughs> and like <laughs> it wasn't today. It was like. There were two, and, like, Adderholt is clearly worried about him, and, like, he's like, I'm finished.
0: He's drinking at work, which we haven't seen him do. Yeah, it's just, like... I don't think.
1: I think we're on a suicide watch here, so I just want to put that out there. I don't want to laugh about it, but there is something, like, absolutely ridiculous about the Gad character. And there's, like, something melodramatic about it. Yes. And, like, in a... In an institution that seems to, like, eschew emotions regularly, and that is, like, deeply and pathologically patriarchal and misogynist, then you get, like, Gad being like, oh, woe is me. I don't know. There's something ironic about that,
0: so. The show has got to, you gotta let the sad boys cook, Um, you know. They
1: are cooking. Sad boy Philip, (laughs) sad boy Clark. We didn't get as much sad boy Stan in this episode, which was... Sad true. for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Last thing in the dossier is like I think that Tatiana is plotting something. I I think that yes, she's in. She's the one dealing with the like glanders nonsense. I think she knows that glanders the very isn't real. real. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know. But
0: like that was just for me. I appreciate <laughs> that. Just for
1: you. But I think that like Tatiana is up to something, and I don't know what she's up to. But like I think it's something. I want it to be connected to Nina, but, like, who knows?
0: Okay, question for you. So, you think Martha is dying in the next episode? Yeah.
1: Okay. I, I mean, yes, but also I've said that for the last eight episodes, so, like, Fair. my word means nothing.
0: It's <laughs> wonderful. All right, I, I'm not going to ask any further questions, because I think I'll end up inducing okay. a certain view. So, great time in the dossier. My theory is that this entire episode was premised on the <laughs> Daniel Dossier segment of the Not Quite Great Books podcast that did not exist when the show was made. Because like, it's... one of the underlying themes of this episode, Queer Dime, etc., uh, one of the themes of this episode that we didn't really <laughs> touch on in the main discussion, because I think this is a place to do it, is the recognition by Philip, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth, like more clearly, but Philip says he understands that, like, if Martha is starting to scream or about to scream, or if like they need to kill her, then they will yeah. kill her right? And, like, that's something that's clearly operating on Philip's mind the entirety of the episode, that is, I think, also operating on Elizabeth's mind in the episode. And, like, Gabriel is slightly sidelined in this episode, um, so it's, we don't necessarily know as much, but, like, he's gonna be the one that's most willing to kill Martha, we think. And so, like, That's just always there, so that, like, is Martha going to die, which is the theme of the Daniel Dossier season, late season three through today, um, just was one of the themes of this episode.
1: Yeah, I would also say that, like, I think Martha is aware of it, too, right? Like, Mm. that's why she's so wary when Elizabeth approaches her, when it's not Clark. Like, I think that she—and that's, like, also why, when she calls her parents— I think she thinks that someone is going to kill her, whether it's the KGB or the FBI. Like, Yeah. So I think Martha, like, I agree with that, and I think Martha is aware of it, too. And time is a flat circle, so maybe it did exist for them in the multiverse. Like, Loki time-slipping
0: or something. Eye rolls. <laughs> Vis- famously visual medium. <laughs> uh, podcasting. I have lots of eye rolls. All right, should we, should we go to gloss? Let's go to gloss. Okay, Daniel, we can start in only one place, and that is just three bros having some brews. Bros and
1: brews. Bros and brews. Yeah. Stolen bro... Stolen... Bros and stolen brews. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: but they can't steal too much, because then Stan would notice. They can't take all of the beers, just some of the beers.
1: I know. I love that <laughs> when Henry's like, how come she gets a beer? Matthew's like... She's fifteen, and we can't take all the beers because my dad would notice. And it's like, okay,
0: she's fifteen, and it's like the reason why she like have more beer. I mean, you? Henry is what twelve, thirteen,
1: but also like when Matthew was like, my dad, my dad doesn't care, or my dad lets me, and then it's my dad doesn't care. I'm like. Ah those are different things. The fact that he doesn't notice doesn't mean he doesn't care. It just means he's bad at his job as a dad. He's only, he's only good as a stand in dad for Henry.
0: (laughs) I mean, our you and I are clear on this matter. He is a much better father to Henry than to Matthew.
1: Well, and I think he's a much better father to Henry than Philip is, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe Matthew needs to go hang out at the Jennings house with Philip. There we go. Everyone can have—they can go play racquetball together since there's been no racquetball in a long time. Where the is the racquetball?
1: Like, literally where?
0: The eternal question. I really appreciate this scene for Paige because (laughs) it's, A, like, she's trying to, like, play it cool, presumably for Matthew and for her brother— but she's also trying to play it cool. And this gets called attention to in the um, in the dialogue that, like, stands an FBI agent. So she's also <laughs> trying to, like, not tip anything off or make Matthew think twice about anything with regards to her or to their family. So, like, she has many reasons that she wants to just, like... Be like, can I have one? I'm not like I'm. I. She doesn't say I'm not a narc, or maybe she does say I'm not a narc, but like something to that effect. In the no, she does say
1: that. She's like, I'm not, I'm not a narc, or like I'm not the police, or something. Yeah, or I wish it was I'm not
0: the FBI, but I don't think that it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not, but that would be a great line. (laughs) Good line. It's true on so many levels. I
1: mean, I do think we have to just recognize that this is an episode where we have Henry in it. So that's good.
0: Why do you think this scene is in this episode?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think it's a reminder that, like, while Philip and Elizabeth are, like, doing other things, the, like, mundane life stuff is still happening. Like, their kids are still around, right? And also that, like, my headcanon is that Elizabeth called Paige... Uh, to be like, we're going to be away for a long time. Because I think the scene, the, the shot right before this is like, Elizabeth makes a phone call, but it's not clear to to whom she's calling. And so my headcanon is she called Paige to be like, you got to take care of your brother because like we're not going to be home till late. And so then Paige... And Paige does say she made dinner. Yeah, exactly. So I think like we need a check-in with... Maybe it's, like, we need to check in with the kids, one, because, like, life still happens while they're, like, off chasing Martha, and two, because, like, we still haven't gotten much resolution with regard to Paige, so just, like, the anxiety of Paige just yeah. needs, like, a little bit of, like, presence.
0: I have two additional thoughts I'll offer. Yeah. One is connected to that last point. Like, this is Paige good at her job? Yeah even though she shouldn't have a job because she's 15 a million percent as the spy child and then the other reason the scene is here is to really beat us over the head that like Henry is an extremely horny 12 or 13 year old pubescent <laughs> boy right because it's like it it literally opens with them like talking with him talking about how uh the Calvin Klein ad is like she's really hot yeah this yeah yeah and it's, like, doing this in the Beeman house where Sandy used to live when her and Sandy were together, like, just a lot of things happening for our guy. Well,
1: and my first thought was, are they just, like, watching porn together on TV? Like, what's happening here? Which is clearly not what they were doing, but I don't know why that was, like, where my brain went. I was like, oh, I think- this relationship got
0: weird. Bros, man. What are you going to do? So many bros. Um, so the episode title is Travel Agents, Danielle. Any thoughts on that? I'm, I mean, I, I, I offered my thought, which is that, like, actually Oleg and Tatiana were the travel agents.
1: Honestly, before you said that during the episode, I was like, I, you couldn't pay me to understand why this episode was called Travel Agents, other than it's, like, 100% what Philip and Elizabeth are not doing in this episode, right? Like... And yet they are chasing someone around. Yeah, I don't know. Like that. I think that your your thought, the Oleg and Tatiana, is like the best one. It doesn't feel fully satisfying, though. But
0: <laughs> I I'll offer some further thoughts and theory ship. I think the the other thing I'll say is that there's there's a question that we raised in the main discussion about planning and logistics and being methodical, but also, like, when shit goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And, like, there, I think there's a slight bit of attention being called to, like, that's the part of the cover that actually works on multiple levels. Yeah. That, like, travel agents and spies and the FBI alike all have to deal with that shit just at varying levels of intensity.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I Like, I often struggle with trying to understand. I mean, it, it took until you were, like, remember the rat at the end of the episode? And I was like, Oh my God, that's why the episode is called the rat. So I'm like often not paying attention to the, the nomenclature, um, which makes me a bad political theorist.
0: (laughs) It's true. Where's you got to apply your close reading skills to the episode titles as well. Do we though? (laughs) (laughs) You know, my answer to that question.
1: Oh my God. All right. You have a theory that you want to throw out to me.
0: Yes, it goes back to your, like, is it, is it Philip or is it Clark and what's his name? Confusion. Oh, okay. Like, I think there's a way in which this episode, more than even the many other times in which this is, like, vaguely sw- swam around my uh, broken, smooth brain. Um, Our broken, that, like, smooth ours, brain? Ours, yeah. But this is a my, this is not an R. Okay. It's because, like, the theory is that actually Philip is in, like, the most fucked up poly relationship ever in the history of the world. Yours, <laughs> 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 it's mine and amy's yeah. shared smooth i was brain. like oh this is the
1: part where our brains are not joined yeah i mean like is it really the most fucked up is the is like the question that my my brain asked don't know I, it's, it's up i guess there. like what makes it so fucked up right is that martha does not know that it's that it's a poly relationship until like the last episode and even then she's never given confirmation well and also that like
0: it's like the 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 p- it's it's a full coercion.
1: Well, mode. yeah, but the other thing that I was thinking is that like she's in a relationship mostly with Clark, but sometimes with Philip, and so there's a like another layer of the poly there, which I hadn't. Yeah,
0: it's a quad. It's not a try. All right, moving. On. All, right. Uh, all right, all right, where, with your terminology. Where is- <laughs> Where is Hans? Show Hans. Yeah, mark. show
1: Hans. You mention Hans. Hans is on his way to the. Hans is at the church. One. Thank you for not giving us a church shot. With multiple church mentions, no church shot because I was like. Huh. It will make me so mad if somehow Pastor Tim is at this church.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Could you have this would have been the worst show, but it would have been fucking hilarious. Is <laughs> if like Martha is like, where do I go? Where do I go? When she ended up at Pastor Tim's church at Reed Street, <laughs> terrible, terrible.
1: Um. So we get a million church mentions, and we get Hans mentions, but we don't get any Hans. And you know, justice for Hans, like give us Hans. For Hans.
0: Hans is hot. Show Hans. Yeah, Hans is uh, hot. Show I Hans. Think- <laughs> I think it's also worth noting this conversation that they have about Martha and her church going, where we also get like a, like a weird moment where like Aderholtz religion gets questioned, but yeah. you know, like they talk about, Oh, well, where do you go? Um, when times are tough. Right. And like Aderholt's like, you want to see God or like have God with all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Then like, he, someone asks him if he's Catholic, and he's like, I'm nothing, but I got dragged to St. Peter's when my, I if it was my parents or my dad my wanted dad. to teach me and my brother a lesson. My dad. Um, so just, like, a little bit of trashing of religion here on this episode, which I'm sure warmed, of Christianity in particular, which I'm sure warmed Danielle's heart. I mean, I was very into it, so. That's it's really- it's part of my theory that, like, we should have a Pope Lenny crossover into the Americans. <laughs> Listen. He can definitely time travel. Jew so.
1: law? Also hot. So, like, I'm here for it, even though... <laughs> Show Hans. Show Hans, Hans. and Jude
0: Law. Seems right. Spinoff. I'm generally anti off but I'd watch that spinoff. Same. I'm what not do you a- think of the sketches that the FBI sketch artist produced?
1: Okay. I was angry that, Sam, that they were like, this doesn't look like Martha, because, like, it was a beautiful sketch of a beautiful woman, and they were like, yeah. Martha's not hot, so it can't be her. And so I was mad about that. What did you think about the Clark sketch?
0: I thought the Clark sketch was incredibly accurate, which is interesting, and I just want to throw that out there.
1: Yeah, also, like, isn't this the second time that we've gotten a pretty accurate sketch of, of, of them?
0: Of a Philip disguise, yeah. yeah.
1: And, like, also, I guess, like, I was worried because I was like, has Philip been coming into Clark's apartment as Philip? Because there's a version of this where, well, Martha knows so why not? And it's like it's um it's another mark of like Philip being good at his job, right? Because like he's yeah. coming in as well. And I
0: I think in episode four or five we got a shot that establishes that he enters the apartment, then takes the wig off.
1: Yeah, yeah, I th- I, You're right, but, like, in the moment of the episode, I was like, oh, no, like, are we, uh, like, did they catch him as Philip because, like, he's let his guard down? Because he has let his guard down so much, like, around Martha. Yeah. But he hadn't.
0: He hasn't. Yeah. All right. Time for some random stuff. Yeah. <laughs> as if Show Hans wasn't random. <laughs> um, I mean. I'm slightly disappointed this wasn't called The Rat Part Two because, like, <laughs> The Rat Gets to make several appearances, (laughs) like... Tatiana's clearly planning the rat's escape to the Soviet Union, obviously. But also, like, there's just a casual rat in the freezer, which is fucking hilarious. And, like, A, just, like, a a really funny shot in this very, very serious, somber episode. And B, it, of course, calls back to mine and Danielle's favorite moment of season four, when Glanders is thrown in the cheap-ass cooler with two ice cubes. (laughs) Uh,
1: So I have, like, so many thoughts. Better OPSEC here. I have so many thoughts about the, like, the rat situation. One, because I think it supports my Glanders' fake hypothesis. Because this (laughs) rat is in a, like, plastic case.
0: It's in a a glass biohazard jar.
1: That can't be right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But also,
1: the best part of, of all of that is Gabriel's face when he,
0: like sees the rat,
1: and he like doesn't say anything about it, but he's like, the
0: fuck, like <laughs> not the not fucking again. Like, I can't believe it with the it with this and it's, rat. I
1: couldn't decide is like, is he disappointed in Philip for like not like roughing up William enough to like like make him take the sample or whatever it is, right? Like, or is he disappointed in William who like one maybe gave everybody glanders and now like can't can't like get a normal sample? And like just like these fucking guys, I gotta do everything myself and just puts it in the freezer. There's like so much like disappointment and disdain on his face and just like exhaustion. Yep. <laughs> it was my Here favorite moment that. of the episode. But I do think it yeah. supports the glanders is fake.
0: Shocking twist to me that that's uh, the interpretation that we draw from that, but alas,
1: I would say the next thing, the next like small thing is just like borscht in general. Like that's the soup that yes. we get.
0: That's the soup that we get, and I mean, Danielle has a personal story to share. I'm feeling as do I angry about yeah. borscht today. Why?
1: Well, my one of my sisters sent me a like the the signs as soup. And, of course, that Capricorn was borscht, which just does not feel correct. And also, Doesn't like, make I don't want to be borscht, and I'm not fucking magenta as a soup, which is, like, an inappropriate color for soup. Okay.
0: Well, are, you, are you generally anti-beets?
1: <laughs> I'm, it's not that I'm anti-beets. I don't particularly like borscht um, in general. It was, like, something my grandfather used to, like—he would, like, beg my grandmother to make it. And then I'd be like, why is the soup purple? <laughs> It's not that I'm anti beats, but I'm not I'm not like the most pro beat person in the world. But there's something about the flavor of borscht that just like I don't
0: want to be associated with it. I have several thoughts here. One is that like I'll do my personal story time. Like, you know, I spent four months in Russia yeah. or whatever for a semester. So like I ate a lot of borscht. My host mother like made borscht somewhat regularly. Um so I've like I've had just a high quantity of borscht in my life. Um and I'm like okay with beets they're definitely not my favorite yeah. but like I I'm a I'm a firm believer that like borscht is not better cold so I got to disagree with our favorite phone operator Joan here like cold borscht is just like not not good like you got to have it hot I was eating meat back at that point, so, like, there was some ground beef situation happening in uh, my host mother's borscht sometimes, and you gotta put a shit ton of smittana, um sour cream into it as well.
1: Maybe this is part of it? I think that it's probably right, you do have to put a ton of sour cream in it. But also, like, soup that you have to add stuff to? Well, that's not, like, soup should be its own meal, and it, <laughs> like, it should be sufficient. That's the whole point of soup. Why are you adding things to the soup if this is not a thing that is, is in the soup initially? It doesn't. It shows that the soup is lower quality.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know that the I didn't know that the Capricorns are borscht like hit so hard. Um, in the in the in the context of this episode, though, I love I do love this moment because yeah. it's this. We get to, like, actually watch Philip in this moment of absolute crisis yeah. both be, like, fully comforted by the presence of the borscht and thoroughly repelled by the borscht. And we get all of that, like, just in a couple of minutes. So I thought it was just, like, a smart choice. And it's also, uh, here is Joan, who, like, probably lives a pretty lonely life, I imagine, also, like, maintaining her ties mm-hmm. to what is home for her. It worked in building their relationship. It worked in building Joan as a character. It worked um, as Philip as a character. So, like, I'm pro-Borscht on the Americans.
1: Listen, I'll let you enjoy your Borscht. I'm with you, though. Like, I'm not... I'm, I'm generally not into c- cold soup. Sorry, I'm just thinking about that point that you've made. But, yeah, this, this is a good moment on the Americans. And, like, there's also, like, a... Uh, when Philip is like, oh, I haven't had Borscht in a while, it's like, it allows us, I think, as the audience, to reflect on some of the points that we made a bit earlier in the episode in terms of Philip being alienated from the Soviet Union, right? Like, I haven't had Borscht in a while, and, like, these, these, like, cultural touchstones that, like, would have been commonplace in every day no longer are to me. It's, like, another moment where that, like, comes through in a really subtle way, which I think is like, you know, narratively nice.
0: Yeah, Last note in glass, there's some, like, really, really bad green screen in this episode. So terrible.
1: You said this, like, you were putting it in the outline when we were getting ready for the episode, and there isn't, in the outline it just says bad green screen, it doesn't say when, and I was like, a million percent, like, and we both knew, it's like, when Elizabeth is on the phone and, like, the Washington Monument is in the background, and it's just like... Oh, guys, come on. You never, like, there's n- there's very little very bad green screen in this series, and it was just, like, so striking and frustrating.
0: <laughs> yep. No notes. <laughs> to you, lots of notes to yep. the show. Don't use green screen. Do a better job. Like, they're much more professional than this. Well,
1: I'm like, listen, I'm happy for them to just, like, be in random places in Prospect Park. She could have just been at a random phone. She didn't have to be, obviously, at a phone in Washington, like, we are always standing Brooklyn in for, for DC, so, like, yeah. I don't know. It just felt
0: unnecessary. Bar to the time, Danielle, we've got two of our favorites. <laughs> We're going to shut up and play the hits. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll uh I'll let you go first.
1: Yeah, so I think just phone booths. Phone booths feel incredibly eighties. It reminds me of a time where like there was a phone booth in front of the diner that we used to go to when I was little and like we would just like play in the phone booth for hours. So that feels like very eighties. And there's like, I don't know, there's a shout out to Bonnie Honig and her public things book where she has like a whole she she rhapsodizes about the beauty of phone of like payphones. <laughs>
0: She also prophesies about melancholia, our mine and Danielle's shared favorite movie. False.
1: Why do political the theorists?
0: Second episode in a row with a melancholia reference. Consistently feel him. the
1: need to talk about Lars von Trier. Melancholia, <laughs> not Elizabethtown.
0: <laughs> not Elizabethtown. Those are different things. I think our other greatest hit that we will return to here is that this is yeah. one of the many episodes of The Americans where the like. So the watch podcast often talks about how like every director and writer like wants to go backwards in time yeah. because they don't want to have to deal with cell phones. Yeah, um, and this is an episode where the drama is an, is entirely and fully premised on that like there's no tracking mechanism for Martha, right? Like, yeah. should Gabriel have like put a tracker in her purse? Probably. But, like, there's no Martha tracking mechanism, so they're literally just randomly going, like, what are the places in D.C. that she might go, and they're just, like, making a list at the beginning of the episode. So that's a kind of wild scattershot strategy, and it's just, like, all of the emotional and plot tension that gets built throughout the episode doesn't happen You know, once you hit like the late aughts, if not earlier.
1: Yeah, I think that 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 is totally right. I feel like you would have to do it differently today, right? You would have, it would have to be something about like disabling the find my phone and like there would be like more technical nonsense about it. And it would be like, it's, it's why you get, and like the watch calls this out to you, it's like why you often get movies that are, like, the entire technological infrastructure su- shuts down, and then there's a chase. So, yeah. Yeah. Couldn't do this today. It would have to look different, and you would have less payphones.
0: Yeah. But one show that I think does do it well, and this is The Watch fade is Slow the Horses. They deal with this question of, like tracking and surveillance well. I don't know, there's something about teens sneaking beer yeah. that is, like, timeless, but there's there's a particular 80s flavor that I was grasping to understand, and Danielle explained it perfectly.
1: Well, I think part of it is because the, like, aesthetics of Stan's house are, like, so aggressively 80s, and this is, like, epitomized by the... Glass that Matthew pours Henry's beer into, or like that he's drinking soda out of, which looks like it was stolen straight from a Pizza Hut in 1983. So, like, <laughs> I don't know why, but it's like there's, there's like that aesthetic is so 80s. And, and it like Stan's house just really stands out in that regard.
0: Absolutely. And then I think we have a couple of Joan bar nostalgias.
1: Yeah. So I think like, First of all, Joan's, like, general fashion feels very 80s. Like, there's something, and I think this, like, is part of her character, right? Like, she is this transplant, like, this very recent transplant from the Soviet Union. or At least, like, that's how I understand her. And so, like, the fashion is very obviously America in the 80s. And so, like, so she pops in that regard for me. What else stands out about the
0: Joan situation? The spoons (laughs) that her and Philip eat the borscht with. It's like the, like, there's an actual spoon at the end that's metal or whatever. And then there's like the plastic color handle around it, which feels extremely 80s slash early 90s to me.
1: I agree. I feel like multiple aunts and uncles of mine had these spoons in the 80s.
0: My gr- my grandma, like, yeah. I definitely, like, when I would visit my grandmother in the 90s, it'd be, like, those were the spoons that we had. Well,
1: like, grandma aesthetic in the 90s is 1980s. So, yeah, that tracks.
0: <laughs> it's a great call.
1: All right. Well, I think that brings us to Minor Character of the Week. Plato
0: season. Oh, my God. How could I forget Minor <laughs> Character of the Week? I was so excited for Plato. Well, well don't worry.
1: Plato's coming. Who's our minor character? He's always of the week? here. He's always already here. It's Joan. It is Joan. Of course. With her plastic handle spoons and her 80s Absolutely. fashion and her, like, bob haircut.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Played by Polly Lee. And I like this episode, like, uses some of its time in a shorter episode, actually, of yeah. The Americans. It nonetheless has time and space for, like, Polly Lee to get to act and to, like, for us to get a little bit more of the personage of Joan as opposed to just a cog in the KGB machine. It's like, a here, too, is a human who, like, has concerns, like, is dedicated to the cause, but, like, is also worried about, like, what was the deal with the previous guy? Why did I have to come here so quickly? So, I appreciated that this episode had time for Gene Joan, excuse me.
1: Yeah, and also, like, in particular, the, like, reminding us that, like, Joan is new and that that is is its own thing and is part of this other, like, mission failure, right? Like, all of... That all feels important in a kind of, like... I don't know if it's, like, foreshadowing or, like, or just underlining some of the stuff that's happening in this episode, but, like, it that felt important and, like, maybe the importance or the significance is going to, like, unfold a bit later.
0: There. You're, like... No comment. (laughs) No comment.
1: All right. Now we have gotten to the cave.
0: I'm scrolling, Danielle. Tell me when to stop. We are in the Republic today. We love Plato season. Okay, stop. Love Plato season. Okay, give me a letter. C. C. Um, We are in book three of the Republic. We've we've been in book three before. Been
1: in book three before.
0: Um, Yes. And so we're talking about um, song and melody. All right. Perfect. So I don't know anything about this, so Danielle can explain it all. Um, so after that, Socrates said, doesn't what concern the manner of song and melody remain? And this is Glaucon. Glaucon says plainly, couldn't everyone by now discover what we have to say about how they must be if we're going to remain in accord with what has already been said? Ha ha ha. And Glaucon laughed out loud and said, I run the risk of not being included in everyone. At least I'm not at present capable of suggesting what sort of things we must say. However, I have a suspicion. Then here's, I think, one of the key Two key points from Socrates, and now we're in 398D. At all events, you are, in the first place, surely capable of saying that melody is composed of three things, speech, harmonic, harmonic mode, and rhythm. What speech and it surely doesn't differ from the speech that isn't sung, insofar as must be spoken according to the same models we prescribed a while ago and in the same way. Do you want me to continue about harmonic mode and rhythm, Danielle.
1: No, I think like I think we can we can stop here. So this is like in part of the so book three. I feel like there are a lot of the like educational pieces of the Republic are sketched and, like, what the education of the Guardians look like. And so this is a part... It's it's also a part that I, like, don't usually teach because it gets yeah. deep into the details of, like, different kinds of, like, m- rhythms and harmonic modes, the Dorian, the, like, like dithrambic, like, all of these different kinds of...
0: Now Danielle's just showing off.
1: Well, this is, like, exactly what I am... Not I'm like writing on it and also resisting writing on these particular details, right? But sure. the the point that Socrates is making is that the kinds of music, it's similar to the point about poetry, but it's like the kinds of music that we allow in our city and speech, like in this ideal city, are going to influence the kinds of uh like behavior and the the setup of the soul of the guardians. And so we need to be careful about what it is and we also need to understand the relationship between like the words the harmonies and the rhythm and how those fit together and like that idea of understanding how the pieces fit together and then also like how whatever is created from those pieces fitting together then influences the behaviors and the like forms of relationships and politics of everyone like that's sort of the key point for Socrates and I think there's like there's a parallel in the Americans right which is like one of the things we're seeing happen in this episode is we're seeing and the last episode is we see the FBI agents Gad, uh, Stan, Adderholt we see them identifying all of these pieces that they have not fit together and we see them recognizing like how like the detriment of the fact that they've missed all of these pieces and so i think that idea that the discussion of like song and melody in the republic as a a way to think about the process that we are watching unfold on screen in this episode like I think it's sort of a productive way to think through that there are probably other ways to interpret it too
0: that's smarter than anything I'd be able to come up with. I'll add two things. One is that, like, so I, as you were talking, I just read on a little bit to, like, get into, like, so what is Socrates excluding? Yeah. Um, and he he's excluding uh, wailing and lamentations. He's excluding yeah. drunkenness, softness, and idleness, yeah. right, as things that are um, most unseemly for the guardians, right? So there's, there's that part of it, too, um, which I think speaks to some of, like, our... Concerned with how emotions are and are not taken up by certain institutions or characters. Yeah. And then, secondly, like your point about how here in the Republic, the character of Socrates is concerned with how, like, image, or how, like, harmony, rhythm, and speech come together. Like, this is also arguably, like, a passage about, like, the power of cinema, or the power of, like, the time image, or the moving image, right? About, like, how do you put together all of these different elements and assemble them into something that, like, acts on people, and acts on people at multiple levels. Two things. That's what I got.
1: Well, no, I I love that. Two things. So, uh, the second point first, like, the idea, right, that aesthetics has a politics or or could have implications for a politics is like something that socrates is quite aware of and yeah uh like works very hard to like keep out right so oftentimes we like oftentimes political theorists think about socrates as like someone who is uh, like emphasizing logos or speech or reason and the reality is that in the republic he recognizes the power of these aesthetic forms. Um he he is trying to push them aside, but like there's power in that. So there's something there I think for you and I just in terms of
0: thinking. The regular old Roncier over there.
1: The other thing and this is a sillier point, but I Please. uh our dear friend Keller who's gonna be on in a few episodes, right? Um, he invited me to give a talk at Manhattan College earlier this semester, and I was talking about my book, uh, I was talking about, like, mourning and grief and rage and Medea, and he asked, he was like, well, his students had just finished reading The Apology in the Republic, and he was like, well, Socrates doesn't, like, talk about, um, mourning in the Republic, and I was like, oh, but he does, it's this, it's this part where he excludes like wailing and lamentation and he's citing Achilles and the way the like the citation in this part is like, or it might be a little bit later, but the citation is the excessive amounts of mourning that Achilles engaged in, um in book, I want to say book 18 of the Iliad. But I could be getting that wrong. It's been a minute since I got to that part of the
0: I don't know whether this means we keep this or get rid of it. But you told that same story in episode two Did of I? the season of the Americans. Yeah.
1: Where? Why? Why was I telling that story in that episode?
0: I because th- we were in book three of oh. the Republic.
1: <laughs> I think we keep it in for the real heads. <laughs> okay. <laughs> i'm just like a, i only have three
0: stories so <laughs> <laughs> same um all right let's on that beautiful note head to theory ship where somehow there's still more Plato. danielle please
1: Well, when we were trying to figure out which Plato dialogue to use today, I was like, what about the Theotetus? John was like, okay, you can do that. But (laughs) it has been...
0: I had trouble spelling that. I have never read this. I'm not
1: sure I'm saying it correctly, so there's that. Um, I read this... uh, The way that comps worked at Penn is, like, you had to pick three thinkers, and then you had to know their entire, like corpus even if we weren't taught it which is deeply frustrating and so plato was one of my thinkers and so i read all of the dialogues um there are a lot and a lot of them are really boring yeah. the, the
0: so i understand <laughs> the
1: reason why this one jumped to my brain is because there is a part in this text where theotate where um socrates is describing the sort of structure of the soul and the relationship between reason and sort of like The, like, the Passions and uh, Thumos, which, like, we get in The Republic too, And he describes them as, like, Reason is holding the reins of two horses, and the Passions are, like, this crazy horse that's, like, really nuts and, like, all over the place – and Thumos – and I believe I'm getting this right – and Thumos is a, is a bit more easily controlled, right? And it's Logos that's, like, holding the reins and controlling these horses, which is a slightly different structure than we get from the Republic. And I was For sure. thinking that, like – thinking about the role of reason and knowledge and rationality right and those are all sort of ways that we think about logos right that that is when we when looking at this episode and looking at the two different um like the FBI and the KGB as like working really hard to exercise a sense of control like i think we could give the Theotetus to both like gabriel and to gad Stan and Adderhold as, like, you are trying to control all of these things that are actually, like, quite difficult to, like, all hold at once in your hands. and And, like, the part of the one way that you might understand the various missteps is, like, is the difficulty in trying to exercise the control that you're doing. I don't know. That's just, like, where my brain went. That was incredible. You just like it when I ra- when I like wax on and on about the platonic
0: dialogues. This is true. <laughs> and it also in part because like it's mostly because you have smart things to say and I always <laughs> learn stuff when you do that. The other part is that anything to like belie your false accusation that I'm Platonist when it comes to aesthetics.
1: <laughs> I mean you are, but it doesn't mean that you have had to have read all of the dialogues to em- to embody the ethos
0: fair <laughs> I see what you did there with your ethos. Um, all right. So for theory ship, I'm going to, I was going to assign some Ranciere and then Danielle A explained that point already and B um, I'll I'll save Ranciere for later because he's always applicable. Instead, I'm going to assign Gail Rubin Ooh. and her Traffic and Women yeah. and I'm going to assign it to Joe and Joel. So to the showrunners nice. and I'm also going to assign it to Danielle Hanley. And the reason I going to do that is because I realized as we were having our conversation about the title of the episode that like one of the other kind of oh, like, travel or traffic like yeah. things is like <laughs> They are actually kind of, like, literally going to be trafficking Martha. Yes. And, like, there's this broader kind of, like, conversation that Ruben helps us open up about, like, how we understand the patriarchy. And, like, the trafficking women is one of the, f- like, concepts or phrases that she uses. And, like, she then seeds that into, like, a symbolic realm and, like, in all of these places. And she does, like, a reading of Cloud Lovey Strauss and of yeah. Engels and of, yeah. like, all these motherfuckers. And it's just a brilliant piece that, um, for some reason, I tried to teach back in the day. Um, which is a, quite a, quite the choice and so I think that like I doubt that uh, Gail Rubin was on the minds of Joe and Joel or even the concept of like a tra- traffic in women was um, so I'm giving it to them I'm giving it to Danielle because I actually realized this was a great name for the episode through Gail Rubin so
1: like as you were saying that I was like oh that's what I was looking for right like it's it's that kind of like meta narrative or like meta theoretical point like with regard to the episode names, where I'm like, okay, like I can, like I can be on board with this, so I'm into that,
0: and I will, I will gladly reread Gail Rubin. Wonderful.
1: I think that we've come to the end of the episode.
0: I do, and I think you're going to be able to make it to swimming, Daniel. <sighs> Remains to be seen if I would like to go tonight. <laughs> Fair. The option is. Exists. Option exists.
1: Um. Thanks as always to producer Amy. Just, uh, you know, another plug for producer Amy's book, (laughs) The Price of Humanity. The
0: Price of Humanity. Yeah.
1: Amy Schiller. um, You should buy it. Uh, Yeah. That's, you know, just a little bit of a plug there. Um, Up next in two weeks in the feed, we'll get American Season 4, Episode 8, The Magic of David Copperfield 5, The Statue of Liberty Disappears. What a wild name for an episode. (laughs) Like, is it referencing something that I like, like a book that I don't know?
0: No, like David Copperfield, the magician. No, no, no,
1: no. I know, but I was like, oh, is there like a Dickens novel named something like this that I'm like, that they've like
0: played around with the names? If it is, it flew over my head. Great. Every time I've watched this show.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books,
0: a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast which created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and, indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com if you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air. Subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend '60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.